Welcome to the Latinx Kidlet Book Festival podcast. This is season one, episode 19, Boys in Middle Grade Fiction, with authors Kim Baker, Ryan Calejo, Pablo Cartaya, Ryan Estrada, and Carlos Hernandez. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the first ever Latinx Kidlet Book Festival. Uh, please read our anti-harassment policy that's in the chat box below and keep discussion kid friendly. My name is Kim Baker. I'm a middle grade writer. I wrote Pickle uh, about a secret prank club and my latest book out this year is called The Water Bears. And um, these are our panelists. Uh, we have uh, we have two Ryans. We have we'll start with Ryan Calejo. He's the award-winning author of the Charlie Hernandez series. Having been born into a family of immigrants and growing up in the so-called capital of Latin America, Ryan knows the importance of diversity and is passionate about writing books that children of all ethnicities can relate to. Next up, we have Pablo Cart Pablo Cartaya. He's the author of the epic fail of Arturo Zamora, which was a 2018 Portobello Prix honor winner. Marcus Vega doesn't speak Spanish, currently in TV and film development. And Each Tiny Spark, a 2020 Schneider Family Book Award winner. He's proudly bilingual in Espanol y Inglés and centers his stories around family, community, and culture. Ryan Estrada is the author, artist, and adventurer who wrote Student Ambassador, The Missing Dragon, Band Book Club, and many others. He's written for Star Trek, Popeye, Garfield, The Nib, Scholastic, Random House, and more. He is a Risk Storyteller and a Moth Story Slam winner. That's great. I love the moth. Uh, Carlos Hernandez is the author of the Poto Balpre award-winning Sal and Gabi Break the Universe, its sequel, Sal and Gabi Fix the Universe, a short story collection, and many stories and poems. He's also a CUNY professor and a game designer slash enthusiast. Welcome, panelists. <laughs> oh, thank Thanks you for being with us. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your books. Let's start with um, Carlos. Let's start with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me here. So the Sal and Gabby uh, series uh, gets its genesis from the fact that I love uh, the multiverse. I love thinking about multiple universes. And so it's a story about Salvador who cannot abide a universe where his mother who has passed away isn't around anymore. So he goes to find her in a, in a different universe and he keeps finding different versions of his mother from different universe hijinks ensue. And the one person that he can't fool is ultra super smart Gabby Real. Uh, and, and they have a bunch of adventures and they break the universe a lot. That sounds fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Ryan E., would you like to go next? Sure. Uh, my newest book is called Student Ambassador, The Missing Dragon. And uh, it's the, hopefully it's the start of a series. And it's about this little boy named uh, Joseph Bazan, who, uh, like me, when I was a kid, I was a student ambassador. And uh, I, I had all these crazy visions of how it was going to be. And then it ended up being like a package tour. And I always dreamed of making a book about how I imagined it being of traveling around the world and having adventures and solving mysteries and and solving international problems so i made that story of this kid who uh goes and has to uh talk a a boy king out of some trouble and uh and basically it's a character whose superpower is uh empathy and, and listening and caring uh so that's my latest book thank you sounds great ryan Calejo. Would you like to go next? Yeah, so um, yeah, my, the first book in the series is the um, Charlie Hernandez and the League of Shadows. And it's basically about a boy named Charlie who grows up listening to his abuelita tell him um, myths and legends from all over the Spanish and uh, Portuguese speaking world. Of course, he thinks the stories are just make believe. But then his uh, parents suddenly go missing, his house burns down, and uh, even uh, he even sprouts feathers and horns in the middle class of the feathers. So, and then he even starts running into creatures from his abuela's stories. And uh, yeah, before he knows it, um, he finds himself teaming up with Violet Ray, who's basically his lifelong crush and like an investigative uh, journalist extraordinaire. And the two of them embark on a wild adventure through the heart of Miami-Dade County, where they visit a lot of interesting places and meet a lot of uh, really, really interesting characters. So there's a ton of action in there and it's an awesome mystery and it's a little spooky too, but it's not too spooky. And there's plenty of humor and heart. 
Excellent, thank you. And Pablo? Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, I just, I just want to say, I love, I love these guys' books so much. Um, you know, I think it's awesome, and I'm just super excited to be on this panel with them. It's fun, you know. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm the author of, of a few books. Uh, most recently, one that I was really proud of was uh, East Tiny Spark. Um, it's, it's a story, loosely based on my daughter. It's, um, she's a Cuban American, grown up in a in a fictional town in northern Georgia, and she has uh, inattentive type ADHD, uh, which is one of the great things. Uh, one of the great honors of my life was to receive the Schneider Family Book Award honor because you know it represents the disability experience, um, and so the the Latinidad was ancillary to the the honor of representing the disability experience, which was, which is, I think kind of like what we're all trying to do. We're just trying to normalize our stories, you know, like just trying to make these very unique um, Latinx stories uh, kind of normalize them. Right. And so for me, uh, it was a great honor and it's, you know, it's awesome. And I'm happy to be here. Uh, we're going to have some fun. Right. <laughs> um, and yeah. And thank you, Kim, so much for, for moderating. So here we go. Thank you. I'm excited. Um, Paolo, let's continue with you. Were you a young reader? And what's the first book you remember identifying with culturally? Oh, man. This, you know, I always feel weird saying, answering this question with writers in the room, you know? Uh, just real talk. Like, I, I read, I was a good reader in school in what the teachers assigned me, right? and stuff like that like i was reading under the night you know like under the covers and so I, like, legit straight up i just gotta be real i was not i did not i was not that kid i played ball i played basketball i played soccer you know i was like i had too many crushes over my 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 my, my middle school years like i was just like that kid but i was a good i was a good enough student i read the books that i was assigned and i think that this is the importance that teachers and educators and 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 people in class in classrooms have for the influences that they can give children right um my teachers i had great english teachers but they put uh raw doll there you know they put um you know i read uh, the bfg james and the giant peach you know i read um those books you know i read uh ray bradbury and those are those are great books right the representation was never a thing for me so it was never a oh there's a cuban american kid in the story you know um like like reading a book like carlos's or or either ryan's you know it's like that was never around but i didn't know what i was missing right you don't realize what you're missing if you don't have it right so it's like i was just like all right whatever i'm just reading the BFG, it's all right, it's funny, you know, it's cool, right? So the power that teachers can have to really influence a, a kid's um, viewing of themselves, I think is, it can't be under, it can't be overstated, right? And so the representation really didn't come to me until I got to college, right? Um, you know, and I read uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you know? But like that, if that's my first introduction to anything Latinx, I mean, that, you know, that poses a problem, right, for the representation that a child can have, you know, in seeing themselves. Um, so that's kind of like my my background with that, you know. And I see Carlos shaking his hand. We're like, we're all like shaking our hand. Like, that's it's true, right? It's like, that's, that's, our, that's our upbringing, you know. That's what we, we came up with, right? you know. How about you, Carlos? Yeah, 100% agree with that. Just did not grow up, uh, you know, around books that reflected the cultural experience I was having. But I, un unlike, uh, you know, I, I was actually a reader and I think mostly it was because I could steal books from my big sister. So like, you know, the urge to steal can give you a lot <laughs> of motivation for what I want. So like whatever it is that you're stealing, like chocolate or, books or, you know, whatever it was, you know, that made it, that made it like more attractive. And so, you know, oh, what, what you reading, Maria? Oh yeah. Look, a Zeppelin, whoosh, you know? And so like, you know, I would, I would basically just like take her book and she wanted me to anyway. And, and now she, she continually, even now big sisters me and passes me on awesome books that, that she's reading. Uh, so I, I, the first book, just to answer the question exactly, the first book I remember reading 
on my own, that was that was my book. I think it was bought at one of those scholastic fairs, um, was Ferdinand the Bold. Do you all remember the story of Ferdinand? I had a bilingual edition. You read it one way, it was in English, you flipped it over, it was in Spanish. I loved that book a lot. It was the green cover one. I remember there was a red cover one that was only English, but I got the the bilingual edition. So yeah, I mean, I, I was I was reading all the way along and really loving it. Uh, didn't have quite as many crushes, so probably made for more reading time possible. Uh, and I guess what I would say too is I was also watching a lot of television and I was playing the Atari 2600. I was a consumer of media, like all the things. And so the other thing I would like to say to people out there, like read lots of books and also, play a lot of games and also go outside and play like street games and stuff. Those are really fun. And like watch a lot of TV. All of it is good because you have great artists doing all of those things, including like making games and making good television. And all of them are different kinds of storytelling. And so like one of the things, uh, you know, I remember doing in first grade was I wrote my first limerick and my, my first grade teacher who was named, no kidding, Mrs. Gross, but you'd imagine what would happen to a teacher who was named Mrs. Gross with like this, this poor saintly woman who was so kind, Mrs. Gross. She liked my limerick so much that the next day I got to read it to the, to the school over the intercom. It was part of the announcements. I mean, I, I had power over fifth graders. They had to, they had to wait and listen to my words before they could go on with their day. Yeah, I was, I was hooked. <laughs> So, so that's what I would say. Like, I think writing was in my blood, like very, very early on. And, and with that came a love of reading early as well. I don't think that goes away. I think I still have that subversive thrill at school visits that it's like, I have everyone's attention in this cafeteria and you can do whatever you want within reason. The power. <laughs> the power. Ryan C., how about you? Were you a young reader? Um, well, actually, I was more of a young listener. Um, for me, it was really the oral traditions um, taught to me by my abuelitas that I really identified with. I missed like um, La Llorona and um, El Cadejo, Madre Monte, all those old stories. And that's what really that's what really drew me in as a when I was you know young. And that's also instilled in me a love of books and of reading and even Latinx culture in general. Uh, in, in my opinion, those a lot of those old myths and legends are really just like culture wrapped up in store, you know, like cultural time capsules. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of years of ancestral wisdom packed into bite-sized pieces, essentially. So that's what really impacted me as a kid. And I'm not sure I can pick out like just one book, but that's exactly, you know, that's why representation matters in literature today. So that Latinx kids growing up, you know, today can find books from amazing authors, like all the ones on this panel, including our, our wonderful moderator. And, uh, you know, experience that even personal connection that, you know, that happens when you see someone that looks like you, you know, in a book. Yes, absolutely. Ryan E., how about you? Yeah, I was very much a reader and a writer very early on, like before I could make memories. Uh, my mother just told stories of me like as a baby, like plotting out arcs of, of stuff I was going to write. And I first started uh, submitting to newspapers when I was six years old. I'm like, I'm ready now. I've been working on it for years. Uh, and the, the wonderful thing was like the parents I had, like my no one told me I couldn't do that. Like you couldn't just get a job at newspaper at six. So they're, they're like, all right, go ahead. I went to the library. I learned about like how to put together a pitch packet. I submitted and uh, like they sent me this very polite letter that's like, yeah, we'll keep your work on file, kid. And I'm like, I'm in, I'm just, waiting for Jim Davis to die and I'm in there. And uh, and I kept bothering the same newspaper until they hired me when I was 15 years old. Um, and throughout all of that, it just, you know, wanting to be a writer, it was all about reading for me. And especially since I make comics, I that's especially what I was into as a kid. And I had like the giant bookshelf in my room of like where I was uh, trying to balance, like keeping things mint condition and also reading them like 40 times a day. But for me, it wasn't like the mint condition, like issue of Superman. It was like I had like every Garfield book and every Farside book and Kelvin and Hobbes and just uh, reading each and every one of them over and over and over again. I had a newspaper experience too. I submitted a poem and they printed it. I grew up in a really small town, but it was like, I thought that was it. That was gravy. And now from here on out, publishing would be, would be easy. Mm -hmm. Not so much. Um, I used to put on plays. I used to put on plays for when, when guests would come over to my mom, to our house. <laughs> I used to put on plays and do full casting. So that, I guess that there's a little bit there too, I guess. Oh, you know? But it's, I think, but it's like what you said, Carlos, it's however we can find the 
our access points to creativity, I think is an important thing, you know? Um, and to be able to, to, to be able to see how, how the, the varying degrees of creativity, um, and how it, how it helps shape your identity too, I think is important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Across media. Sorry, go ahead, Carlos. I was just going to say that we have such a limited idea of what counts as creativity. You know, it's got to be in this form and this little thing, and some are way better yeah. than others. It's just so stifling when, you know, I, I just saw a comic the other day where it's like, you know, picking out your clothes is a very creative act. You know, you are assembling mm -hmm. colors in your mind and deciding what you're going to wear and what you're going to look like and what literally your identity for that day is going to be. And so, you know, what I want to do is just democratize the whole darn thing and say, all of this is creative. We are, we are creative creatures just by being alive and we should just celebrate and find the avenues with which we want to express our creativity. Right. I know um, Latinx cultures are not a monolith by any means. And when I was growing up, creativity was not really valued in that way. We were working class and um, you had to, there was more pressure to be practical, like with your pursuits or whatever. And like, maybe you could draw or something on the side, but there was not, at least in our family, a lot of encouragement to pursue your creative outlets like that. So I don't know if that's true for you guys, but um, what do you wish people understood about growing up a Latinx boy? And um, what do you think, what's changed for kids today and what hasn't? I'm curious. Um, Ryan E, you wanna start? Uh, sure, I guess for me, it's the main thing that everyone's experience is different. Like for, for me, uh, you know, my, my grandfather was from Mexico, so I'm a quarter Mexican. Mm -hmm. And growing up, I think it's a lot because of not having the representation there and not having books that uh, with people like me in them. I never, growing up, never thought of myself as Latinx. I, I, I didn't think of myself as Mexican. That was my, my grandfather's thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it, it kind of like it wasn't something I really thought about until I was an adult and I kind of moved to uh, Mexico. I moved to my grandfather's hometown, like kind of a, as an outsider and realizing like how different my worldview or how my view of Mexico was just because I'd only experienced it through um, the types of stories that aren't centered around that point of view. It was like, I'm like, this place is like, I, I can't believe how safe, like I lived in Zacatecas, which is the most beautiful cities I've lived in. And like the only pictures I'd seen of Mexico were like, you know, little huts and like cowboys. And, and like, it, it just blew my mind how uh, I could grow up and not know my own culture. So I think that's one of the, the biggest things is that there's, uh, you know, it's not inherent to know all of this unless there's something that shows it to us. Absolutely. Um, Ryan C, do you have any? Oh. I'm sorry, Kim. No, sorry. go ahead, Pablo. I jumped on it. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm just like, I'm getting excited to talk, and I'm like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> do it. And you're doing it. I mean, you see, this is, I also got in trouble in school because I was like, hablaba mucho. I spoke too much. <laughs> and I was like, Pablo, raise your hand. Go ahead, Pablo. Uh, no, yeah, no, it was it, like, I, I, I just want to jump on like what you were saying too about, mono, about the monolith. And then, and then what Ryan is is talking about. I mean, our our experiences are so varied. They're so even within. Like I'm Cuban American, right? I I grew up in New York City. I lived in Miami. I mean, Ryan, you grew up in New, in Miami, right? Um, yeah. So it's like, and our experiences even within our our own cultures, our own places of upbringing, right? We're we're, our experiences are different, you know, like my, my good friend Celia Perez, um, she grew up in Miami too, you know, and she, you know, she's Cuban, Mexican, and her experiences are, are very different. So I think that, I think that we have to look as, we have to look at the, the term Latinx, which is now coming into more of an, of an accepted term, right? And we, and I think that, you know, we have to understand that, that what that means is, it exists in multitudes. Carlos, you're talking, you know, you like the multiverse, right? Like this is what I believe the Latinx experience is. It, it is it exists in multitudes, right? It makes up over 20 countries, right? Multiple languages, multiple dialects, even, you know, we're, we're contending with a bazillion different histories, ancestral histories, right? All of these things. So to put it into this one little neat box, and like existe. It's not existe. It doesn't even, you know, like even within our own cultures, there are so many nuances and so many variances. 
And so I think that that the term, because like my mom's like, pero que es Latinx? Que es eso? Que es eso? Tu eres cubano. You know, how many of your, your parents, your people are like, what is that? What is that? Right? I have to explain it to them. Right? I'm like, there's a, there, there is, there is a, a sense of we are in this act of discovering something about the variants of our identities. And that to me is what Latinx represents, right? I'm still discovering stuff about my own self, right? And I think that that's an important thing to, to kind of um, talk about and to think about, right? And ruminate on and how our stories then reflect that, right? Mm -hmm. So that the kids that come in on those classrooms, when classrooms are a thing again or whatever, you know, that they kind of read Ryan's book and they read Carlos's book and Ryan E's book and my books and stuff. And they say, oh, wow, there is a multitude of my experiences, you know? Right. And yeah. Absolutely. Um, Ryan C., how about you? What was it like growing up as a Latinx boy and how do you think it's different now? Well, I mean, I think growing up as, um, you know, Latinx, you can sometimes feel different or kind of like, you know, you know, alienated a little bit from your classmates and friends. I know that in the case of my cousins, they always said how they felt a little different because they grew up in, in neighborhoods that were a lot less diverse than where I grew up. I grew up in a really diverse community. So I didn't I didn't really feel like that. But they grew up in less diverse communities and they felt a little bit alienated. And I know that some of the kids, I know one kid in my uh, a friend of mine, he actually he didn't really speak English very much at all. So he felt super alienated from like, you know, from from everybody else. So. I would like, I mean, I, I, would, I wish people, and he got treated, I guess he got bullied sometimes and stuff. But um, um, I, I guess what I would like people to know is that just because like someone who grew, grows up Latinx, uh, maybe they come off a little more guarded, especially if they don't speak English or they, or they really feel like an outsider. It's not that they don't like you, or they don't want to hang out with you. It's just that, you know, it takes time to overcome that, that feeling of being different when you move to, especially when you come from a different country. Now you're in, you're in a whole new place. And I saw that with, you know, especially with my cousins and some, and some of their friends, but um, I mean, years ago, I feel like there was there was sort of like I mean, maybe this is a little bit longer, but I feel like there was sort of a pressure to a pressure to blend in, you know, to be part of the you know the melting pot, that whole idea. But I mean, and especially I feel like some kids, even uh, friends of mine that grew up speaking Spanish and who grew up listening to the same kind of you know stories from the abuelitas, they kind of felt pressured to maybe stop speaking Spanish, you know, speak only English because that's what a lot of you know that's kind of like you know popular culture back then and stuff like that. So. And kind of, they even abandoned some of their tradition, their traditions and customs that their family might have brought over from various countries. But today, I feel that it's different because I feel like today uniqueness is much more accepted, and there's, you know, there's less pressure to be exactly like everybody else. And there's also a lot more, you know, diverse literature nowadays so, than when I was growing up. So that's different, and and that, you know, that's helpful too. Thank you. Yeah, things are uh, they're really different when I. When I was growing up, I grew up in Wyoming and Colorado, and then um, which we were the only Latinx family in town. My, I'm bicultural. My dad's white, but then we'd go to California to East LA in the summers, and I'd spend time there. And so the culture there was different, and it was like this really kind of distinct, separate experience. And then we moved to New Mexico, and that population was mostly Mexicanos too, but it was different. It was just it's there's so much nuance. It's like a layered onion. How about you, Carlos? What do you think? What do you wish people knew? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, first, I want to echo what everybody is saying here, and like uh, the monolith idea is is really important because we need lots of Latinx authors. We need lots of people who are doing this kind of work to just keep enriching, you know. And and the way that I think about it often is like in a garden, if you have three or four different types of flowers, it's just, it's very uniform and kind of boring, you know, as opposed to like the whole expanse of nature that could be available to you if you were a little more adventurous in your flower selection. So, you know, we're trying to add more flowers to the garden here by, by introducing subtle voice. And so it's not just like one voice that counts as the Latinx voice. Uh, but, but in terms of growing up, one of the things that I think might be common in the Latinx experience is that you will experience racism very differently depending on what room you're in. And I was just thinking about what you were saying, Kim, about you being the only uh, Latinx family in, in a small white community. You were probably never browner in your life than in that moment. But in other situations, you might pass. I, I was a good student uh, all, and especially in English, like I was a good student, you know, top of the class, setting curves, like I was, I was good. Uh, and so people would forget that my name was Carlos Hernandez and that, you know, I was bilingual and, you know, so, you know, people to my face would tell me racist jokes that I was not interested in because they thought I was just 
with them all the way, you know, just because I didn't have a certain kind of accent or a certain kind of positionality or skin color, you know. But sometimes I got much browner much more quickly, just depending on which room I happen to be standing in. And I think that's something that many Latinos may encounter. They may encounter racism because of skin color. They may encounter a different kind of subtle, almost insidious kind of racism because people think they are something that, you know, they're not because they have this whole cultural background to rely on. I also wanted to say that, um, you know, one of the things that I personally had to fight with a lot, and I wonder if other panelists did too, was undoing a lot of the machista stuff that I learned uh, growing up. And machismo, I think it exists in plenty of cultures. It's not just a, a Latinx thing, but we have a word for it that's been imported into English, you know, and so that makes it very present, at least in my mind. And I know a lot of my work in my 20s was unlearning a lot of the machista stuff that I had uh, absorbed, you know, just a lot of stuff that made being a boy growing up uh, difficult and and just unfair and ugly. Uh, so I, I would say that's that's something else that maybe the other authors may have experienced too. Yeah, does anyone wanna to respond to that? I mean, you have, I mean, yeah, absolutely, Carlos. I mean, you have, um, you know, uh, even even just like with sports, right? I mean, I, I played sports because my dad played sports, right? And I like sports too, but there's this kind of, um, you know, this idea where like, okay, well, the dudes, you know, we play sports and then, you know, like we go out, you know, and you, that's kind of like the, and there's there's this like machito, you know, like SME machito, you know, even the abuelitas sometimes like SME machito, you know, like um it it becomes a a thing that that persists through youth, right? And again, it's like what I said earlier, it's like you don't know what it is until you reflect on it, right? And I think to to Carlos's point, I think that um the idea of reflecting on some of the more challenging aspects of what our identities can represent some of the things that are a little more problematic right um there is colorism within our communities a lot of you know big time you know there is this this persistent idea of machismo in within our communities um and i think that it's not going and then throwing out all our abuelos and dads and stuff like that who were maybe you know machista at some point in their life it's more like reflecting so that again we can be the ones that start changing the conversation we can be the allies we can be the people that are trying to move forward right moving forward like that that's not cool anymore pops you know that's not cool abuelo like you can't talk like that anymore you know what i mean like like my abuelo never did that, but but you know what I'm saying, like or your deal or whatever that's like super inappropriate, you know, and and you're like, yo, you can't do that anymore. And I think that you you being an active um, participant in the change that needs to exist, right? I think that's where we can hang our hats on, right? Um, in, instead of saying, oh, I hate my culture because they're super macho, I say, look, that's problematic, and I want I want to be the person that is part of the change where that is no longer accepted you know um and i think that that's something yeah yeah i was just gonna say those are the books we have here too we have big hearted protagonists here who are not just limited by this sort of like very small idea of what it means to be a boy or or you know to do that and so you know i think one of the ways that we can be helpful is to write books that give us alternate views of what a, a young latino can look like that's right yeah absolutely Thank you, guys. How much of your protagonist characterization originates within your own experience? Um, Ryan C., do you want to start? Also, there's yeah. lots I see running through the stories and what you guys are saying now. It's like big shout outs to abuelas, man. Like they come up in the stories all the time and everyone's bringing them up in their anecdotes and I love it. So it's all about the abuelas. All right. So how does your experience uh, work your, its way into your stories, right? 
Well, I'm going to be honest. Um, a lot, a lot of my book is autobiographical. Uh, I'm bilingual, just like Charlie. Uh, we have the same favorite foods: arroz con pollo, seafood paella. Um, growing up, my abuelitas they taught me all the same myths and legends that Charlie's abuela teaches him. And almost every place that uh, Charlie invited visit in the book are places that you know I love to hang out at when I was growing up or ride my bike near. And um, yeah, I mean, in case anyone's wondering, I did I did sprout feathers in the middle of class one time. Maybe so. Maybe I pasted it on myself during an arts and crafts project. But I mean, that's pretty that's pretty close. It's, it's pretty close. But no, seriously. Um, I think every author draws from what they know, and I try and incorporate as much of me as possible in the characters so I can make them, you know, authentically, you know, authentic. Ryan E. Yeah, a lot of my work is straight up autobiographical. I make stories about the experiences I've had. But even when I write fiction, like Student Ambassador. Pretty much every character I write is me, whether it's the hero or the villain or uh, all their good qualities or, or bad qualities or, or things that I uh, am either either like or dislike or am exaggerating about myself. Um, and especially with Student Ambassador, you know, it's it's the, the two kids that it's following are like the, you know, like I said, the one that centers on like listening to people and, and learning and the one who's just stubborn and doesn't listen to anyone. They're both me. It's just the two things in my head that are talking as I'm going on adventure and everywhere that they've traveled is places that I've traveled and, uh, you know, thoughts that I've had. So it's, it's kind of, no matter what I write. It's, I think it's, that's true of a lot of writers. Ryan, you said something interesting in email about uh, struggling with seeing yourself in a role that was not traditionally held by marginalized people. And I've heard that from other marginalized writers. Yeah. Would you like to say something about that? Speak on that. Yeah, I, um, yeah, th so the book is called Student Ambassador, and it's so I, I've, like I said, I've been working on this since like the 90s when I was a kid. It's a dream to make this book. But since it's about someone who's representing the entire nation of, you know, the United States, it, as a kid, I always pictured, you know, it had to be a little white kid. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what the version of the book was that I was developing and pitching for years because I never reconsidered that. It's just the, the story I made as a kid. And like how, you know, how could a Mexican kid be the ambassador like of a nation? And then it, it just, it like I said, I've, I've been working on this and pitching it to every publishing company and every agent forever. And it never kind of went anywhere I wanted it to go. And then finally, just one day I was just like, wait a minute, I was a student ambassador. I'm the one writing it. Why can't the kid be like me? Uh, and then I just, I couldn't think of any reason and then I, so I switched over. I, I changed the the kid, uh, the main character, and I got a, uh, a Mexican artist to illustrate the book, uh, and kind of worked with him to extra uh, Ennius, worked with him to uh, incorporate more of that in the story. And then now suddenly the it is book came out. It's a success. It connects more with people. It has more meaning behind it. And now we're working on the sequel that actually takes place in Mexico. Great. Thank you. Pablo, how about you? How much of your experience works its way into your stories from your uh, childhood? Um, um, I think mine is a lot more in, it's an internal um, experience. You know, it's the things that I've, I've been afraid of in my life. I think the things that I've, I've hoped for, the things that I've lost, the things that I've um, had to contend with, the things that I wish I had. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that, you know, those como sentimientos dentro, you know, like that you, those feelings that you have right. inside um th that exists in again multitudes where there is sadness there's a lot of sadness that i have in certain points of my life you know something from as visceral as losing my abuelita um when i was when i was young um and even to this day i can't i can't read a certain section of the epic fail of arturo zamora without breaking into tears um when i did the audiobook recording of that they had to stop the session because i couldn't stop crying um, and so it's, so it's strange, right? This book that you said, I mean, we all spend so much time with our words and we're like in between edits and revisions and all this stuff. Um, and for me to go back and read this and I even, even thinking about it makes me feel like, you know, it, 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 make, it puts that lump in my throat. Right. So there is an internal feeling. I mean, the, the idea of this book, um, each tiny spark when, when my kid, my 13 year old, uh, Penelope, when she read the book. She looks at the first page that she read. She turns to me. She goes, "Papi, that's me." 
She was asking me, that's how I think. And and of course, and then of course, I'm, I get emotional sometimes. So I start crying again. I'm like, it's so crying. I was like, oh my god, you know. It's like there's there's that feeling, um, and so a lot of it, you know, is it's I guess it's an internal autobiography. You know, what I'm, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's it's more like, oh yeah, um, it, it's it's those things. It's like what Steven Spielberg said once. He said, I I make movies about things that I'm afraid of, right. Um, um, and I think that that that's what it uh, represents in a lot of ways. It's this sort of internalized um, feelings uh, of my life and my history, you know. Um, so that's why that's why they exist the way they do. Yeah, absolutely. Carlos, how about you? Yeah, I think um, I definitely try to incorporate at least a little bit of myself in every character. And often I'll do it like literally by having a sentence that I'll keep reminding myself of. So for Sal Vilon, uh, the sentence I, I had in mind for him was, Sal messes up like you mess up. And I did that because what I wanted to do was say like, Sal always means well, but then he messes up like spectacularly and then comes up with these cockamamie plans to like try to fix them. Like these Rube Goldberg 20 point plans that will suddenly fix everything like a bad eighties movie plot or something, you know? And so, and I did grow up in the eighties, so that I blame it on the movies. But so, you know, there was that. And so Gabby Riel, who's the other character, uh, the line for her was you wish you were Gabby. You know, and so like, you know, when I when I wrote her, I was just writing her as an aspirational character. Not that she didn't have her foibles and things like that, but but Gabby does write, you know, and, and so I, I wrote her in that kind of way. And so for me, I definitely try to incorporate something that's valuable to myself. But I also love the weirdness of when characters who aren't you start talking to you and start deciding things on the page for you and saying, uh-uh, I wouldn't do that. That's that's what you thought you were gonna do when you were writing that stupid useless outline that you sold your book to with the editor. Nah, man, we're we're doing something else. See you way left over here. <laughs> that's always fun. I could keep talking about all this stuff all day, and we didn't get to half the questions, but we want to leave time for some student questions that were sent in. I'm excited about that. So um, our first one is from Jesse G, a fifth grader in California, and it's for Pablo. Hi, my name is Jesse Guerrero, and I have a question about your book. So I like this book a lot, but I'm still not sure, like, I'm still not sure how you came up with the idea for it. And I've been wondering this for a long time, and now I finally get to ask you. <laughs> I love that. Um, so I, I, you know, I want to tell Jesse, thank you for asking the question. And it's a really good one. You know, the the stories the stories come, I believe, from from your heart and your soul, right? And the experiences that you have um, throughout your life, right? And they're and sometimes they they come from questions that you want to answer. So, for example, the epic fail of Arturo Zamora is is a story that's very much rooted in how I felt when I lost my grandma, my abuelita. Right, and how I also felt when I had my first crush, um, you know, and so a lot of that comes when I was writing the story. A lot of it came from remembering those things and the feelings that I had. So it's not the actual things, but it's the feeling inside, right? Like my guts frying, like they felt like they were in a deep fryer every time I saw this this girl. Her name was um, Caroline, who I was super crushing on. And I didn't know what to do. And I was super awkward and weird. And I remember that feeling. And when I was writing the story of Arturo, who has a crush on Carmen, that's the feeling that I kind of put into there, right? Um, the feeling of of my abuelita getting sick. Um, and, and I remember I was little and I remember how it felt. And I remember how empty I felt and how helpless I felt. And then saying goodbye, right? So there's there's a lot of those things that are inside. You know, when I write all of my books, they all have to do with something deep and personal, right? And so any question that you have about, you know, well, how did, how did the book, when you read a certain chapter, you read something, how did it make you feel, right? Well, it probably made me feel something. So if you're feeling it, it's because I felt it. And that's why I put it in. 
So I hope that answers your question, Jesse. Thank you for uh, for coming in and, and recording it, and I appreciate it. All right, thank you, Jesse. We have another question, a video from Sebastian R, a fifth grader in Florida. Sebastian, and my question is, how long did it take to write the book? Okay, um, thank you, Sebastian. Uh, Ryan C, how long does it take you to write a book? Oh, that depends. Um, I think the first the first book uh, took me like about maybe like eight eight or nine months to write this one, but the um, the second book in the series you can see is is considerably it's longer. So that one probably took me like probably like a little bit over ten months to write that one, and had they both have a lot of action, so. It takes a little while to write those uh, scenes, but yeah, I would say yeah, like yeah, between eight and ten months. That's a that's a healthy amount of time. Uh, Ryan E, how about you? Yeah, mine varies wildly as well. Like I said, student ambassador I worked on since uh, since the nineties, but that doesn't mean I was sitting there at a you know typing the script that long. It's just something. There are a lot of projects that I just think about for years and years, and then once uh, I get a publisher and it's actually time to write a script, uh, maybe it'll it'll take a few months, maybe it'll take a lot of months. It all depends on the story and and how much research it takes and uh, how how much thought it takes. Okay, Carlos. Uh, the Sal and Gabby books were each about a year. The first one a little more than a year, and the second one a little under a year, and mostly because Disney was going to beat me up if I didn't finish on time. <laughs> That's always an incentive. Pablo, how about you? Uh, well, you know, I love answering this question because um, the epic trail of Arturo Zamora took me, I started it in graduate school and I finished five years later from the, from, from the first draft to seeing it in the bookstore. It took me five years. Um, I did 23 full revisions, 23 different full revisions. Okay. Um, the book was originally 300 pages, so those anybody good at math around here, 23 times 300, all right? <clears throat> I wrote 6,900 pages before the final book came out. Um, and that's a book that, you know, that it ended up being like 240 pages. Um, and But the thing is that um, I always joke, I'm like, yeah, I, I tell this, I say this to the kids, right? When I'm when I'm on tour or whatever, and I'm speaking to them, and I say, I go all of that, five years, twenty three drafts, six thousand nine hundred pages, and what do I have to show for it? I got a shiny little sticker, right? And as a kind of as a kind of way to say, look, you're gonna fail a lot more than you're gonna succeed. You're gonna mess up a lot more than you do well in. But if you do an analogy for basketball, like you shoot hoops, you're not gonna shoot hoops once to play in a game, right? You're gonna shoot it thousands of times, right? I even say about like Instagram pictures, right? Like like what, everybody just takes the first Instagram pic, the first pic that they do, that's the post? <laughs> no, no, how many pictures? You gotta look up, you gotta look down, you gotta look side, you gotta do filters, you gotta do a thing, right? There's a lot of process, a lot of, drafts that take place um and that's not and i think that's something that we don't talk about enough right is the process right the drafts right. we write and we write and we edit and we edit and we and you know like ryan you're drawing how many how many renderings do you make and then you got to go back and you got to fix them you know and like and the, the storylines change right and the characters that you end up like removing from the story <laughs> you know they're like no i don't want to remove this but you have to because it makes sense you know it's like all this stuff it's all the process of what the finished product, what this piece of you know paper and cardboard makes up, right? It's a long process. So I think it's important to recognize that this is it's a it's a long you're in it for the long haul, you know? Absolutely. Were your other books more expedited? Um like um Marcus Vega uh Marcus Vega doesn't speak Spanish, took was probably my he was my Nino Lindo because mm -hmm. he, he just he just was. I did three full drafts of the book and it was done, right? Um, and it took me about like like Ryan it took me like eight months to just from start to finish. Um, each tiny spark, 
like my beloved daughter took was was a process of understanding and learning you know and that one was like like 20 something drafts um but it took but i had to but because i was on deadline um and a very hard deadline those 23 draft those it was about 20 drafts it was it took place over the course of 12 months wow it was insane that's fast i do not count my drafts because it would be terrible um it takes i'm the slowest i guess it takes me a couple years per book i gotta figure out ways to be quicker we have a couple more questions not with video but what that got sent in um the next one is from audrey h an eighth grader in california it's for me it says how do you write books for middle school boys do you ask family members that are boys what to write um i don't ask boys what i should write uh i can ask them um i do ask i have a son who is the age of my protagonist when i wrote um he's in high school now but he was the same age and pickle and the water bears and i can kind of base a lot of the characterization off of him and his friends and it's it's like with anything you start with an individual and i i don't really think about it as their gender role so much as who they are and what their experiences are like and what they like and they want and they need and what they're afraid of and you just think about all that and then um when i'm done part of the revision process for me and probably for all of these guys as well is i um have beta readers read it and tell me that if i got everything right or if anything's not ringing true to them um for everything i have um we have authenticity readers um i even had um for the water bears i my experience is that i'm bicultural i'm mexican-american and i had um authenticity readers that were also mexican read it and see if it rang true for them and some things did and some things didn't because like we were saying before it's all an individual experience and then um that's just what you represent so um yeah i don't ask them what to write but i do um get their input and i take it into consideration thank you that's a good question and then we have one more question without video um from taylor a fifth grader in connecticut this one's for carlos who or what inspired you to become an author carlos it's a yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I already told my first grade story of the power I had over my whole school through the power of a limerick. And that was definitely part of it. But I also want to say that like just the storytellers in my family definitely inspired me and also put me in a storytelling frame of mind. So my dad could write these devastatingly satirical poems about his friends and stuff. And he would just destroy them in like pretty savage ways. Like he was like a troll before troll was a word, you know, but he would troll them with poetry. And I was always like, yeah, that's clever. And I, I think I learned a little bit about poetic rhythm from him that way. And my mother was just such a fabulous storyteller that I, I mean, I just listened to her all the time. We would laugh all the time about the stories that she would tell about farm life in Cuba. Uh, and then uh, when I was eight years old, I think um, the whole family, all four kids in my family, we all got bears uh, as part of our gifts. And I got a panda bear. Three of us got panda bears. Barbie got a brown bear. Uh, and I named my bear Kanda the panda. And then I spent the next 10 years telling stories about Kanda the panda with my brothers and sisters. And we had a bear town created and it was magical and hilarious and weird. And like, like I'm not even sure other people would understand it, but it was always there. And I think it's always there with almost all kids because when I've encountered kids, you know, before they get to like, 10 or 11, all of them are poets. All of them are storytellers. They are all thinking beautifully and magically. And then I think it just gets scared out of them or they, they learn different ways of being and they, they forget that. And I just didn't, I didn't want to. And I hope you won't either. Thanks, Carlos. Um, real quick, we have about a minute and a half left. Um, if everybody, if we can go through one by one, what's next for you guys? Um, Carlos, do you have anything in the pipeline you want to share? Yeah, so um, I'm working on a new novel now where the rats of New York City each know one word of English or Spanish, and together they form a bilingual community where, you know, if you put 80,000 of them together, you basically have a Spanish-English dictionary. And this is how they communicate with the uh, exterminator's son of a family who uh, they have to hire because a dragon has come to live in the sewers and eating all the rats. So they, they need to hire an exterminator to get rid of the dragon. That sounds amazing. Okay, real quick, Ryan, Ryan E. Yeah, 
Yeah, well, uh, the sequel to Student Ambassador is what I'm working on now, Student Ambassador, The Silver City, and I'm also working on the sequel to Band Book Club, which is going to be called Band Book Club Occulted. So look out for those. Excellent. Thank you. Ryan C. Yeah, I'm working on the third book in the uh, Charlie Hernandez series, and I have um, another book coming out in a different series, and then I'm also I also have another one coming out in a um, a different another different series. So a couple series. So you're a busy guy. Excellent. And Pablo, how about you? Yeah, I've got um. So right now I've, I'm wrapping up one that is about uh, takes place about a hundred years in the future, and there are no more bees on Earth. And these two hermanas uh, find the last bee colony on Earth, and there's an evil mayor that's trying to like, you know, take the take down the bees and all that. So that's it's a little jump from my regular stuff, but I'm really excited. I'm also working on another uh, another book. And another one that I can't say anything about um, publicly yet, but uh, it's super exciting, very cool. And um, you know, I just I just want to say, y'all guys, it's like been great talking to you. This is what is this? Is the middle middle grade boys panel? What is this? Boys in middle boys in grade the, fiction, and we are boys, out of time. We've gone over our time. Boys in middle grade. Boys, boys in middle, middle grade. grade. Fiction, Latinx thank you. Book festival. I just thank you so much, Kim, for amazing questions and for moderating and. Guys, I hope to see you all uh, in person soon. Uh, and I just want to wish everyone uh, safe and, and healthy um, uh, places wherever they are, you know. I wish them, wish them, wish them safety and health, uh, good health. Um, thank you, Pablo. And thank you, other panelists. And thank you, everybody, for attending our Boys in Middle Grade Fiction at the Latinx Kid Lit Book Festival. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Pablo. Thank you, Ryans. <laughs> Thanks.